0: an investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Jackie Bowen. She is the executive director of the Clean Label Project, a national nonprofit with the mission to bring truth and transparency to food and consumer product labeling. Before coming to the Clean Label Project, Ms. Bowen held several Technical standards development and leadership roles within the World Health Organization, NSF International, and most recently, she served as the general manager of Quality Assurance International, the largest domestic USDA organic certifier. Ms. Bowen has worked on certification offerings, including the non GMO project and certified gluten free. She earned a BS in environmental biology from Michigan State University a Master of Public Health in Management and Policy from the University of Michigan, a Master of Science in Quality Engineering from Eastern Michigan University, and a Postgraduate Certificate in Innovation and Business Strategy from MIT. You have assembled a terrific board of directors, Ms. Bowen, on the Clean Label Project, including veterinarians, doctors, a dietitian, chemist, and an attorney, so you are very well-suited to talk about the idea of how do we bring more truth and transparency to our food system. Welcome.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm curious to know, you've got an MPH, a Master's in Public Health. What was it that led you to be curious about food labeling and quality assurances in the food system?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. What ultimately led me down my path was I grew up in Michigan, northern Michigan, actually, which contributed to my love for the outdoors, obviously pursued an undergraduate degree in environmental biology, looking to forge my personal and professional interests. What ultimately kind of brought me to Clean Label Project is that over the past several years, we've seen a proliferation of on-package label claims, things like certified organic, non-GMO projects, certified gluten-free, all of which are so important to public and environmental health. But what's interesting is over the past several years, We've also seen an increase in consumer, media, and regulatory attention being paid to industrial and environmental contaminants and toxins, chemicals of concern, including things like heavy metals, pesticide residues, and plasticizers, with known links to endocrine disruption, infertility, and cancers. But what's interesting is that in the court of law, these things are largely not paid attention to, but in the court of public opinion, it's a different story. We see these things play out in the media all the time. Whether it's glyphosate and best-selling breakfast cereals or BPA, leaching from plastic bottles, consumers are increasingly concerned about dietary exposures to known contaminants.
0: Yeah, and it is amazing to me. I looked at some of your white papers. I looked at some of the reports that you've done, some of the products that you've looked into, and I want to take some time to dive into those. Because I think that people may be surprised to learn, for example, that was it 80% 80% of infant formulas were contaminated with 80% of infant formulas tested positive for arsenic, 36% of samples contained lead?
1: Yes, that's absolutely correct. We actually published a peer-reviewed academic journal within the Science and the Total Environment about our investigation into baby food and infant formula. We tested north of 500 of America's best-selling baby foods and infant formula. And to specifically answer your question about infant formula, when it comes to infant formula, it's the exclusive form of nourishment for so many babies during the most vulnerable period of immune system and brain development. In fact, the World Health Organization says that the first thousand days of life are critically important for the long-term health and wellness of a human. So for us, making sure that babies have more of the good stuff, less of that bad stuff is so important during those early years. When we looked at infant formula, what was crazy is that you see lead levels, the average, was non detect down to five parts per billion, which is great. But what we did also identify is that two of the top-selling formulas actually exceeded 30 parts per billion of lead. And to put that number into perspective, the average amount of lead found during the Flint, Michigan, drinking water crisis was 27 parts per billion. You armed parents with this type of information, they will make different choices in terms of what's in the best interest for their children.
0: Yeah. How is this even legal to sell infant formula that's contaminated with arsenic and lead?
1: You know, what's interesting is that for the most part, the food safety regulatory fabric in America is largely focused on pathogens and microbiological contaminants. Things like E. coli, salmonella, listeria, things linked to salad mix recalls or burrito restaurants, things that are largely, you'll know if you're sick within 24 to 72 hours. But when you look at things like heavy metals and pesticides exposure, these are things with known links to cancers and reproductive harm. But it largely doesn't manifest itself into chronic disease until after years, even decades of exposure. So You don't see this immediate effect. And therefore, you really don't talk about it or hear about it that much when it comes to federal regulations.
0: Hmm. And where is this coming from? Is it that the water is
1: contaminated? Uh, water amongst other things. Overall, what has happened is that because of our societal choices around mining, fracking, industrial agriculture, these different types of contaminants, they end up in the air, they end up in the water, and they end up in the soil. And unless brands proactively look at food safety differently, and they source ingredients differently, that it's not just a matter of complying with federal law, which I frankly refer to as table stakes. It's a matter of looking at what it is that consumers expect a product to be. That's the ultimate root cause, or where it's coming from, is the absence of regulation is breeding complacency, that we're essentially comfortable with it because nobody's paying attention to it. But let's also be honest, when it comes to heavy metals, there's also a fair amount that's naturally occurring in the Earth's crust. However, many human factors also contribute to this contamination.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, it seems to me that if this, as you say, is the sole form of nourishment, the sole source of where a child is going to get the nutrients needed for growth and development, and the first 1,000 days are so critical, it would seem to me that there should be better precautions in place and that those heavy metals should be somehow filtered out or removed from that formula. Now, if new mothers wanted to find out what brands in particular tested to have those contaminants. Can they find that out at your website? How do we go to the next step in terms of I've got this new baby, I want to make sure that I choose the very best formula on the market if I'm not, for whatever reason, able to breastfeed?
1: Yes, absolutely. Come and see us at cleanlabelproject.org. You can check out all the brands that we have evaluated and certified, and I'm happy to provide more information. This is such an important, critical topic for new families. And what's also You know, especially for me and to your point about public health, when it comes to infant formula, what we overall see is that low-income women of color have higher uses of infant formula than Hispanic women. And so what we see is that is a population that is especially critical to make sure that we get this information to.
0: All right. And just for our listeners, the website to go to is cleanlabelproject.org. And I will provide a link to that as well. All right, I want to dive into some of the other foods and beverages that you have researched. You looked at decaffeinated coffee. This is so interesting because you found that certainly there are some groups in our population who should not be having caffeinated coffee, such as pregnant women, those with heart disease. You go to the store, you're looking for a decaffeinated coffee, but some products use methylene chloride to remove caffeine, what's wrong with that compound?
1: Yeah, That's an interesting one. What's so fascinating about methylene chloride is that the Environmental Protection Agency banned this chemical from use as a paint stripper just last year. So in other words, the EPA said, you know what, industry, because of the public health risk, you are no longer able to use this chemical, even though it's effective at removing paint. What's interesting, though, is To date, the EPA has not banned or the FDA has not banned the use of methylene chloride to decaffeinate coffee. And in fact, this solvent is even present in low levels in decaffeinated coffee beans. It's interesting because we actually have seen a handful of retailers that have banned methylene chloride-based paint strippers from their own retail stores, but yet their private label decaffeinated coffees actually contain this chemical. It's hard to believe that it's one where it may not be good enough to to clean the wall, but it's okay to put in your morning cup of coffee. Definitely an inconsistency in regulatory application there.
0: Right. And just in case our listeners are curious, the FDA has concluded that methylene chloride is carcinogenic to animals when inhaled and may be carcinogenic to humans. So erring on the side of precaution, as those of us in public health work choose to do, we want to make sure that our decaffeinated coffee is not decaffeinated with methylene chloride. What do we look for on the label to make sure we're not getting any traces of this contaminant?
1: Yes, a couple things. Look for certified organic and look for a water-based decaffeination. Over our testing, we tested north of 30 different products top selling decaffeinated coffee. 100% of the time, we found that products that were certified organic or made claims about using water decaffeination, they did not contain this solvent. Brands that largely were kind of silent on it, you can guess it's not something that they're proud of. When in doubt, reach back to the brand. Let them know that this is something that's important to you. Ask to know how they decaffeinate. And of course, you can check out our website for more information.
0: Okay, very good. And there's a great white paper on decaf coffee, and it's very helpful. Now, I am curious to know, how do you go about testing products? And it seems like there are so many choices in the marketplace. Do you just go to local supermarkets? You're based in Colorado. Do you have shoppers all over the country picking up products? How do you test them? How do you know the labs that you're working with are going to be the same, say, or have the same results as if you went to a different lab?
1: Yes. Okay. So in terms of how clean label projects, how we go about doing our investigation. So a few things. I personally have my own favorites when it comes to categories that I love to test. Those categories would have to do with any vulnerable populations. Or just populations that we have uh, that were especially sensitive to. Those would be pregnant women, infants, children, as well as our pets. I also like examining categories with products that have like a health bend to them. So for me, it's one of looking at those categories. How I come up with my shopping list is that I largely use bestsellers lists. I go on things like Amazon.com bestsellers list, Walmart.com, Target.com, because what I want to do is replicate what it is that's in pantries and refrigerators across America. So what I personally literally do is I come up with a shopping list, I go to local co-ops, national retailers, and brand websites, and I purchase the products just like any consumer would. The only difference is I take these products to a variety of clean label project accredited analytical chemistry laboratory partners and have those products tested. I have them tested for label claims as well as heavy metals, pesticide residues, and plasticizers in order to identify, does uh, this product really stack up to all of its marketing claims?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is so important. And I'll tell you, I, I'll just share a little story with you. I was at a party one time and I was talking to just somebody there. We were talking about the importance of choosing organic food and farming. And he said, you know, I bought a can of cooked beans. And he said, then I later learned that the can was probably lined with BPA. And he said, that shouldn't happen with an organic product. There's this expectation that it's going to be a cleaner product. And so I think that being able to identify brands and specific products that contain these plasticizers from BPA can linings is really important. And while I am an advocate for organic food, I think it is important to call out those products that aren't good players in the marketplace with regard to not paying closer attention to their packaging materials.
1: Absolutely. To your point, packaging migration is a real issue. You know, the benefits of BPA is that they extend the shelf life. You line a can and so that it's one where you don't have to do as a brand, you don't have to do as many production runs. But the problem is that over time, especially when these cans are heated in any way, they have a tendency to leach into the finished product. And we know that chemicals like bisphenol A and BPS are linked to endocrine disruption and infertility. And to your point, The organic industry largely has this halo effect. We know that they're doing things for the better when it comes to not using genetically modified ingredients as well as not allowing for different types of systemic pesticides. But when it comes to different types of requirements around packaging, the regulation really doesn't cover that.
0: Right. Okay. Yet one more thing to be paying attention to in the marketplace. Let me just remind our listeners that if you are just joining us you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined today by Ms. Jackie Bowen and she is the executive director of the Clean Label Project, a national nonprofit with the mission to bring truth and transparency to food and consumer product labeling. Jackie, let me ask you, when you do find a product that has some negative attributes, are you able to let the manufacturer know and does there then A consumer demand or some sort of public shaming based on this knowledge that would leave the manufacturer to change the way they package their food or to maybe filter out some of those contaminants?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'll tell you a story on that one. So, first, to answer your question, yes. When we see egregious, significant potential risk to public health, we notify. FDA and the authorities of those types of issues. We absolutely do that. What's interesting is Clean Mabel Project did an investigation several years back into the true contents of America's best-selling protein powders. And so what I did, this was back in 2018, so we tested, oh, I believe it was 121 of the best-selling protein powders in America, made up 42 brands.
0: in advance
1: of publishing my investigation, I contacted all of the brands in advance, And I notified them, said something along these lines. Hi, my name is Jackie Bowen. I'm the Executive Director of Clean Label Project. In the spirit of public health and continuous improvement, I'm contacting you today because I'd like to share with you your raw data in terms of your test for your products. Part of our 2018 protein powder study, we pulled these samples, we test them for these different contaminants, and I'd like to share with you your test results. So here's a question for you. Of those 42 brands that I contacted, offering to share with them their raw data on their levels of heavy metals, pesticide residues, residual solvents, plasticizers, how many of those brands do you think took me up on my offer to see their data?
0: Oh my gosh, I would hope they all would.
1: Two, but both of them sent me cease and desist letters. (gasps) So rather than have the information and look to improve, instead the attempt was to try and silence the messenger. Now, the thing is where Clean Label Project is fortunate is I don't make my recommendations. I don't do my studies based on personal opinions. Rather, the investigations are based on analytical chemistry using ICPMS, tandem LC mass spectrometers. So it's one where it's based on data. The thing is, it's like at the end of the day is there's a fair amount of brands out there looking to protect the status quo when it comes to the current food safety and food policy in America. Clean Label Project is a disruptor in the space. So, you know, if you check us out online, there's a fair amount of opposition into Clean Label Project approach to bringing the truth to consumers.
0: And what about the labs? There was some discussion on a food summit where we were both participating, and somebody mentioned that there are some labs that will not test for certain ingredients, like glyphosate, for example. That's the major ingredient in Monsanto's Roundup, now Bayer. Do you find that there are some labs that don't want to work with you to identify certain ingredients or contaminants?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. In fact, I have my own practice in order to make sure that the products that I'm testing remain confidential because I want to make sure that I truly have an independent test result. So I almost make it a double blind study so they have no idea what it is that they're testing so that I know that I can truly trust those test results. To your point, it's one where, you know, when it comes to analytical chemistry, this instrumentation has the ability to be calibrated to very low sensitivities, literally testing down to the parts per billion and even parts per trillion levels. What you sometimes see that brands do, this gives brands as well as consumers a false sense of comfort and security. If you see these certificates of analysis that report data in parts per million, to put that in perspective, that is a thousandfold less strict or less calibrated than testing down to parts per billion. Right. So what you see are these certificates of analysis that say, Oh, non detect for all of these all of these things. Look, it's it's picture perfect being like, no, this may have been analytical chemistry back in 1987, but these days, equipment and analytical chemistry instrumentation is so much more sensitive that what you see are these certificates of analysis that largely aren't even worth the price of the ink or the paper that it's printed on.
0: That's so interesting. And really, when you think about the public in general, and I would say myself included, there's not a high level of math literacy and so when we talk about parts per million or parts per billion, can the average person on the street and even the average health professional, are we really that comfortable about understanding the difference? Unless we are used to doing that level of analysis and we're used to using those kinds of terms and having equivalents, we hear people talk about, well, that's equivalent to one drop in a Olympic-sized pool, yeah. and then we also don't realize just how powerful some compounds are in parts per billion amounts, and you know we talk about how oh, there's just a a part per billion level of a certain maybe pesticide residue, and yet when we talk about hormone actions or you know the naturally occurring hormones in our body or some of the drugs we take, they are active at those minute levels. so how do you go about explaining that to people who? don't really have a good understanding of the impact that those tiny amounts can have?
1: Oh, that's a, that's a tough one, but it's a great question. So a few ways. The way I always like to put into perspective is when people hear about, oh, it's just this part per billion level of total arsenic. I'm like, if it was just total arsenic, it wouldn't be a problem. But we're not being exposed to just total arsenic. We're being exposed to lead and mercury and antibiotic residues, and growth hormones, and pesticide residues, and plasticizers, in terms of the overall interaction within your gut system on a daily basis, and on an every time you eat a meal basis, we have no idea on how these interact with our system. I mean, I'm sure you can attest to it, too, that it's even one where it's fascinating listening to friends about how, how can it be in a matter of a generation, we've had this significant increase in infertility or significant increase in different types of allergies. And yet you can't help but sometimes wonder is there a possible correlation into the food we eat and the effects that it's having on our overall system? So that's one way I like to explain it. Another way I like to explain it is kind of putting the analogy into perspective. Oh, oh my God, I should not have eaten that egg salad at yesterday afternoon's potluck. I think I woke up with infertility. <laughs> right. That nobody ever, right? Right. So it's one where so much of our focus, is that food safety is not just based on these short term acute exposure. It's about how can these low level exposures within our overall system contribute to chronic disease over years and even decades. And that's what we're looking to, Cleanable Project is looking to change the definition of food and consumer product safety with a long term view on health.
0: Oh, it's so good that you're doing this work. This is so important. We have no way of really getting our heads around just how many contaminants are in our environment that we are faced with on a daily basis. And then for those most vulnerable populations, children, pregnant women, I think that your site is especially important, cleanlabelproject.org. All right. One of the comments that you made during a recent food summit was about CBD products. And I know these are very popular right now. I was blown away by your comments that you had tested CBD products. Some of them had just a fraction of CBD in them. Some had way more than the label had said. How do people know which products are safe and effective and worth spending money on? Because some of them yes. are very expensive.
1: You're absolutely correct. And that was the exact reason that Clean Label Projects conducted an investigation of the best selling CBD products in America. I mean, it's, this industry is expected to hit 22 billion by 2022. It's such a hot product category right now. And the thing is, it's frankly premium priced and we know that it hasn't had that regulatory scrutiny that other categories have. So we tested the top selling CBD products in America. And to your point, we uncovered a fair amount of fascinating findings to say the least. But there's one thing that holds true for CBD, as well as all the other product categories, that whether I'm looking at baby food, pet food, protein powder, or CBD, there's one common denominator that is a predictor of finished product quality and purity. And that one thing is vertical integration. In other words, it's that concept of know your farmer, know your food. 80% of products and foods in America use a co-manufacturer. That means that brands outsource the ingredient sourcing, as well as the formulation to a third party. This is not necessarily a bad thing. However, if you are not intimately involved in the ingredient sourcing, the testing, and the supplier assurance, you have a higher propensity to not be able to determine the finished product quality or purity. In CBD products, as well as in baby food and pet food, the more vertically integrated a brand is, the more that a finished product manufacturer owns their farm, grows their own product, and therefore knows exactly where it comes from, the higher predictor it is of that finished product quality and purity.
0: Wow. And how evident is that from the product on the shelf? It's really up to the consumer then to figure all this out. And it's not easy.
1: No, you're absolutely correct. It's not easy. I will say this, is that one thing is true is that brands that do vertical integration, they like talking about it. They're, they tell their beautiful stories about their farms, about their vineyards, about their operations. And the thing that's great about it is it's, it's scale neutral. You can see big brands that are vertically integrated as well as small and local operations. So it's a matter of sometimes doing your homework, especially if you have different products and brands that your family especially loves, then it's a matter of maybe know that brand a little bit deeper. Ask more questions. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's really good advice. Now, we just have a few minutes left. And I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to bring forth any topics or issues that you want to make sure that our listeners know.
1: Oh, where would I start? In terms of it's always interesting to me, because whenever I run into people, either in the airport, or they hear what I do, they always will say things of like, Oh, my God, what do you eat? <laughs> and you can't help I always laugh because I'll say things of like I'm I'm technically a professional buzzkill at dinner parties. That's kind of my thing, right? But, you know, what's interesting is that there are so many amazing brands out there that are proactively trying to do the right thing. They identify that the definition of food safety is changing in the minds of consumers. They recognize that it's not just a matter of meeting federal regulations. Like I mentioned, those are table stakes. But rather, they, too, are paying attention to what's playing out in the media. They recognize that the federal government may not hold them accountable to pay attention to heavy metals, pesticide residues, and plasticizers, but they know that that court of public opinion is. It's a matter of making sure to make your voice known. It's such an amazing time to be a consumer. In terms of using social media, hold brands accountable. In fact, hold them publicly accountable. Go on social media feeds and grill them on those questions. If they are making marketing claims, ask them how. I dare you to go into a grocery store. Find me one product on the grocery store shelf that says, this product is entirely average. And, you know, in fact, frankly, it doesn't taste very good. And we use the cheaper packaging that had the BPA. And yeah, I get it that it might have a leaching problem. Everything says it's full of wholesome goodness. It's sustainable and natural. So for us as consumers, it's a matter of demanding more answers, asking questions and demanding answers, and even more importantly, doing that publicly on any social media feed.
0: Right, and sharing the results that we find on your website. So just to let our listeners know, there are reviews on cooking oils, on sweeteners. I, of course, spent a lot of time in the food section, but there are beverages. You mentioned the protein powders. I'm really conscious of packaging. I try not to purchase things that are, are in plastic because I think we just have too much of it out there, and there's that opportunity for migration. But your website is absolutely fascinating. And again, that's cleanlabelproject.org. We need to close. This has just been fascinating, but we are out of time. So in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in-